Chips. Hey folks, welcome to today's Fallon Forum, broadcasting live from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Yeah, you got it. That's Des Moines, Iowa. Okay, so um, later in the program, we're going to talk with Attorney Joseph Glazebrook about legal and constitutional challenges to Iowa's uh, anti-abortion law, now being regarded as the most strict abortion law in the country. Uh, we'll also talk about how some of the new climate developments of great concern, including uh, the 400th straight month of temperatures warmer than normal. We'll talk about that. Uh, also, uh, right after this segment, uh, Rabbi David Kaufman will join us to talk about his perspective on the U.S. Embassy being moved to Jerusalem and uh, the aftermath of violence in, uh, at the Gaza-Israeli border. And on that subject, we have Maria Filippone in the studio to uh, uh, get us started on that. Um, again, we try to keep a, a you know, flow of conversation here that allows various perspectives to be aired. I certainly have my opinions. Anybody who knows me knows that. <laughs> but I try to be fair and balanced, unlike Fox News. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, a lot of people are pretty saddened by what happened uh, in Gaza and Israel after the uh, embassy was moved to Jerusalem. And, um, and that, that, that includes uh, you know, a, a fairly, you know, a, a fairly uh, I, I, I want to say, pointed response from a lot of other countries, including the U.N. But um, maybe give us your take on... You know, first of all, you've been to Gaza several times. I've been there three times, yes. So give us your take on what happened, and we'll, we'll start from there. I was supposed to be there um, in May this month working with the organization I go with, Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Um, but this, we were actually denied entry by Israel into Gaza for our work dates. Um, and that's the first time we've ever been denied entry. Usually we are just not given an answer. Um, but normally but, you're able to go. Right, but right. But this time you right. won't be able to. I was not able to. We were supposed to work April 29th through May 10th. Um, but no, I, I, the last time I went, though, I took my daughter. I did not go with this organization. I went through UNRWA, United okay. Nations Relief Works Agency. So so you would have been there during the time right. where a lot, a lot of this uh, this conflict right. was happening. And, um Palestinians tell, say that it's they're protesting not just the embassy move; they're protesting um, their right to return to their homeland. And uh, maybe a little history for folks who might not be up to speed on it. But why does why does Gaza exist? From I mean, your point of view, I mean, I'll, I'll get the rabbi's point of view on this as well. But why 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 are those why are Gazans Palestinians in Gaza currently not allowed to return to what they regard as their homeland? Well, in 1948, when um, the state of Israel was founded, um, the over 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes. Thousands were murdered. Um, many of them were put into refugee camps in Gaza, other parts of Palestine and um, Lebanon and Jordan, where descendants and many of them still live today. Um, the people of Gaza in 2007 voted Hamas into power to govern them because they felt they weren't getting fair representation through the Palestinian Authority. Um, and the U.S. has deemed Hamas a terrorist organization. Have other um, countries? Uh, since then, since then um, Israel has imposed a blockade over Gaza, controlling air, land, and sea. Um, do you think that designation is accurate? Uh, that it, that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Terrorist organization. Yeah. I'm not. I 
that's irrelevant to me because I don't I focus on the needs of Gaza and the people of Gaza um, and getting their stories out. Uh, mm-hmm. Most Gazans don't like Hamas. They don't like Fatah. They they want to just um, live. Yeah. And so would would you say the uh, the, the protests that occurred at the uh, the border were I mean. I mean, fueled by the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, but but there's obviously more. more well, it's than that, fueled but. by the uh, desperate conditions. While I was there in uh, last July with my daughter, uh, the UN revised a previous report they had released, saying now in. 2015, they released a report saying if things continue as they are, Gaza will be uninhabitable by 2020. While I was there because um, Fatah and Israel um, increased their uh, lack of electricity, decreased electricity to Gaza during that time. So now instead of getting it eight to 10 hours a day, they get it two to four hours a day of electricity. While I was there in July with my daughter, the UN released a subsequent report saying Gaza is now effectively uninhabitable. So the the conditions there are absolutely horrific, unlike any other place in the world. Um, And it's... and so, so the uh, the uh, the uh, establishment of the embassy in Jerusalem was a linchpin, but the uh, the real cause of the unrest is again these is there, horrific yes. conditions. Well, in, it's for anywhere from forty five to seventy percent unemployment, depending on what demographic you're looking at. Ninety seven percent of the water is not fit for human consumption. They get two to four hours of electricity per day. There's uh, they can't almost nothing. Nothing can get through. Mm-hmm. Almost nothing. So, so. Uh, one of the criticisms uh, of the response of the Israeli army to the uh, Palestinians who came to the border to protest the embassy's move was that, you know, that, that this was uh, armed, a very heavily armed a militia, a, a military force against, you know, people who were mm-hmm. – some of them. I, I mean, well, I, don't, I don't know all the story. I, I saw, was, I saw um, one, one picture of a guy in a crutch uh, hurling – um, using a slingshot. Most, most but, of the Gazans who were protesting were peaceful. Um, of course – they're people just like everybody else. Some through Molotov cocktails and slingshots and rocks. Um, they burn tires to obscure the snipers. There's so many reports from reporters from all over the world there who say it was methodical killing of unarmed protesters. There was not a single gun on the Gaza side. There was not a single rocket launched by Hamas. Um, People were shot methodically from over a hundred yards away who were just watching. Right, and so, so um, how it was collective punishment, and it was a disproportionate use of force. What do you again? Again, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem is 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 it, it's important. It's symbolic, but the the uh, the root problems are much deeper. What do you see as the Solution. What needs to happen to move beyond this uh, this problem? Well, I think first we need to step back and uh, take a look at how the reality there and look at the very beginning. Um, there is a difference between Zionism and Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, Judaism is a religion. Uh, Zionism is a colonialist, imperialist form of um, settling a country. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uh, myths that my second time in Gaza, one of my uh, colleagues 
came from Seattle. She's Jewish, and she, everybody in Gaza knew that. She wore her Star of David earrings almost every day, and she was welcomed just as warmly as I was. The people um, in, in Palestine and Gaza, like the West Bank and Gaza, they know that there's a difference between um, religion and, and Zionism. They mm. know that, and they, they just want equal rights. Right now, there are no equal rights for people in that country. So what, what about the contention that, uh, that a lot of the people who were killed and wounded at the border were, were active members of Hamas? What does that mean? I mean, so what? They had no guns. I, I don't endorse Hamas at all. Mm. But it, it's clear what happened last Monday. There were no guns. It was a disproportionate use of force. Mm. And the continued siege over Gaza constitutes collective punishment. And to what extent do you think dialogue on this is going to help? Or, 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 or I hope it helps. I hope you know. we can all recognize each other as human beings first mm. and uh, talk and, and work towards peace. Yeah, and there are those who, who I want, have faith that can happen. Yeah, well, it, so. it, it'll happen when we when we really go the extra mile to try to make it happen. But right. what, do you are you now? There are there are folks who believe that Israel has does not have a right to exist. Well, people have a right to exist. Right, but I'm the not, state of Israel does not have a right I, to exist. Does, are those who believe that? I well, that's what they can believe. I don't believe that. Okay, so right. well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Is, uh, and you've, I know you've been there several times, mm -hmm. and you've got a lot of personal connections. So, you know, while a lot of us are concerned about, uh, you know, death and violence and injustice everywhere, when you've been there, it's a lot more emotional and a lot more, a lot uh, a lot more personal. Yeah. So I pre appreciate you taking yeah. the time to share with us, and thanks for your well, thank continued you. willingness to dialogue. Thank you. Okay, later in the program, we'll be talking about uh, the fact that uh, climate change has an a new statistic that should be of great concern. We'll also talk with attorney Joseph Glazebrook about constitutional and legal challenges to Iowa's anti-abortion law. But in the studio with me, in the studio with me now is uh, Rabbi uh, David Kaufman. And uh, Rabbi was here uh, during our conversation with Maria Philippone. And um, I wanted to, uh, you know, I... I love the fact that Maria believes that dialogue is really important on this. Mm -hmm. And I know there are, there are leaders in the Des Moines Jewish community that I have invited on this program before, and they said no. So I commend you for taking the time and having the guts <laughs> to sit down and visit with us. Um, so, again, let's just start with uh, your take on moving the U.S. Embassy to, embassy to Jerusalem. Good idea? Bad idea? Well, and so uh, I think that the embassy should have been moved to Jerusalem 70 years ago. Oh, <laughs> um, good idea. So, I mean, I think that the reason it hadn't been moved to Jerusalem was institutionalized anti-Semitism, institutionalized Jew hatred in the United Nations. But isn't it partly the uh, the con concern that it's going to inflame, as it has, Palestinians? Yeah, you... because Palestinians believe that all the land is theirs, and they want to eliminate any permanent Jewish presence in the land. And therefore, the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, the West Jerusalem as the capital of Jerusalem uh, automatically means that a nation believes that Israel is going to be there past tomorrow, and therefore yeah. that upsets them. The Palestinians I've spoken with and those who advocate for them say they, they aren't interested in driving Israel out of the country. They, there, want, they, want, to, they want to share it. There are different groups of Palestinians okay, that which is being completely ignored. So Hamas 
Uh, Hamas and leaders, some of the leaders among the Palestinian Authority believe the long-term goal is the reclamation of all of the land by the Palestinians, the reoccupation of all of the land, and the expulsion of all of the Jews. But that's a minority. No, it's not a minority in certain places. That's the problem. But and the an, other, the other problem is we don't, know, we don't know what percentage of minority it is if it is a minority. It's certainly not represented by Hamas. Right. Okay, so Hamas' march of return is designed to return all of the Palestinians who claim to be refugees, including people who never set foot in Israel, uh, for, for who, who are grandchildren of people who were, who were born in Israel. The Palestinians are the only refugee population in the world that has not been allowed to become citizens of the lands in which they live in many countries. Uh, other populations do not expect to go back to their, the lands and that they that they were that they left during wars. Uh, well, and you know, so but, it, but, but you it, say they left. It's an isolated I mean, population. I mean, some would say they were evicted. Doesn't matter. It honestly doesn't matter. I mean, think about other populations that have been Native Americans that have been left. Well, so well, what about Native Americans? Uh, Native Americans were forced out of the United States? Well, they were forced off their lands. Okay, so, I mean, look, if you're going to argue that the United States is, should really be the Native Americans' countries, no, then you know, we have a whole but, other uh, discussion. I think, I think, I think, we, I think we're going to yeah. run out of time for the well, relevant <laughs> things here if we go okay, this direction. Okay, so let's, let's go to the... So, I mean, look, I, I honestly, I mean, there are a couple of things I want to respond to about, about Maria's conversation, because I don't want to be seen as completely opposite Maria. I mean, I think Maria said a number of things that are very important. I think Israel's policy of denying uh, entry to people who want to come in and help the Palestinians is ridiculous. Um, I, I think even people who are who uh uh, who are pronounced critics of Israel should be let in, uh, and especially if they're coming in on medical uh, things to help people in Gaza. I think that makes no sense at all, and it reflects very badly on Israel. Um, but at the same time, and I think we need, to, we need to acknowledge the fact that Hamas is a terrorist organization. They advocate for the destruction of Israel. Uh, they advocate for the killing of Jews. They advocate for the killing of Jewish civilians. Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of the political wing of Hamas, who is organizing these protests now, he's taken them over okay, but from the people. No, he's taken them over from the people who who wanted to originally protest peacefully sure. and turned them into cover for militant operations designed to break down the barriers that separate but Gaza and Israel and invade. Regardless of how you regard Hamas, uh, yeah. the, uh, the the reality is we had a whole lot of uh, most of the countries in the world through the UN and the UN itself condemn what happened. There are 110 recently. people, there are 110 nations in, in the United Nations who will condemn Israel first living. It no. doesn't matter. The, the United Nations is going to always vote anti-Semitic. There are 55 Arab nations who will always vote the Arab vote. And there are other nations that are dependent on them for oil and other political operations. There are additionally nations that are dependent on Russia and China who will always vote So there's, there's no legitimacy There's no to legitimacy to any criticism from the United Nations, which is why no one's listening to it, well, which is why Israel no ignores it. it. And the the, mm. the validity of UN General Assembly votes is not real. So did the, the Israeli the military act correctly? 
I think absolutely they did. I mean, you have 40,000 people coming to your border with the leader of the group saying they're coming to rip the hearts out of the Jews, and they publish maps of where the Jewish Jewish, uh, uh, enclaves are on the other side of the border. They organize the protests to breach the border at those points and have armed terrorist groups waiting to rush across the border to kill people and kidnap people. The only thing that Israel could do is shoot anybody who crossed the border. Now, the question is, did they did they have the validity of shooting people approaching the border to prevent the border from being breached? And that happened. And my belief is, yes, they did, because if they didn't, the consequences are being totally ignored. You cannot so okay argue. To, but it's okay, it's okay to shoot people who are unarmed. Approaching they were not unarmed. But First of all, you have to assume they're armed. They had bombs and guns. Okay? The other thing is tens of thousands of people breaching a border, it doesn't matter whether they're armed or not. They could rip people apart with their hands. So the problem, the problem you have here is when Israel is facing this kind of situation, if those borders were breached and hundreds of people or thousands of people crossed the borders, all of the military personnel, the police, and the civilians on the other side of the border would have had to consider all of them suicide bombers because some of them would have been. And the problem with that would have meant you would have had hundreds or thousands of dead Palestinians and numerous dead Israelis in that case. So the fact that only 60 people died in this, the Israelis believe is the best they could have done and they're going to do it again. That's a hard that's, yes, that's a hard thing to say. This is the problem that the situation the Israelis believe they were in is either you kill people trying to breach the border mm-hmm. or you have a war with hundreds or thousands of dead people. So, now you can pick which one of those you like and you can argue that the Israelis are awful for killing the people that they did, but the Israelis are going to make that decision every single time and any government that so even do, cares I, I, about defending their own borders I, and the security of their we, people is going to how do we get that. from here to peace? How do you? That's a different issue, and we need well, a lot no, more it's time. The core issue. It's the so, core I mean, issue. <laughs> look, what I would what I would say is, you have a big problem in Gaza. I, w- I would encourage people to read what Dan Shapiro, who was President Obama's ambassador to Israel, has been writing about this exact situation. Um, the situation you have in Gaza right now is that Ga- that Hamas is entrenched. They're abusing their own population. They're sacrificing them. They were paying people to rush the border at a time when they knew Sorry, that people is, is, would shoot aren't them. Aren't using Hamas as a scapegoat? Absolutely not. I, I mean, well, okay, okay, let me let me see this. Okay, so let's let's say let's say this. Um, th- you are responsible for everything the Trump administration does. Okay. You're an American. You're responsible for everything the Trump administration does. If the Trump administration decides to go to war with Mexico tomorrow, you are at war with Mexico. I'm, your point is like – So what I'm saying <laughs> – no, honestly, what I'm saying is this. We elected, we elected that government. They elected Hamas, okay? There hasn't been an election in Gaza in years. Why hasn't there been an election in Gaza in years? Because of Hamas. I don't know whether the Palestinians in Gaza right now would elect Hamas to but, be their authority because they haven't allowed let, an election. Let me try a different angle. We've got uh, we've got. Uh, but otherwise, to, their response. Otherwise, they represent the people in Gaza. We've got the UN telling us that by 2020, Gaza will be unlivable. They're saying it's already pretty much unlivable. You know, uh, Maria outlined the and Gaza about, trying to and Hamas trying to make it unlivable. They blew up the humanitarian access. Uh, uh, but what is Israel right. doing to make it livable? Sending in humanitarian aid along with Egypt and others. Cutting electricity? 
Israel's not cutting electricity. Hamas Palestinian Authority, first of all, Hamas blew up the, the fuel lines. They blew up the electric lines coming in through the Rafah border cross for Karen Shalom. And the Palestinian Authority told Israel that they had to cut off power or else. Mm. So does Israel choose to support Hamas or do they support the, the President Abbas? Mm. I mean, honestly, this is what the situation is. If Israel had maintained, if Israel had told President Abbas that they would not continue to support power to Gaza, um, they would be accused of violating the the accords with with the uh, Palestinian Authority. And not only that, um, but Israel actually is the one who pressured the Palestinian Authority to concede. Mm. They said, we're going to withhold Fatah's funding if you don't allow the, the electricity in. And the United so, States also pressured So how them. do we get to the point where Gaza Maybe, maybe, and well, let's just say, how do we get to the point where life is livable for Palestinians in in Gaza, in Israel, in the West? It's going to have to be something that removes Hamas from power. That's the problem. I mean, even Egypt has this issue too. Anything that you put. Anything that you do that allows Hamas to gain strength is going to increase the oppression of the people living in Gaza. That's the biggest problem. Uh, the, the Egyptians could open their border. Why are the Egyptians not opening their border? Because they believe that not only are, would it strengthen the Hamas government, which is part of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, which is the opponents of al-Sisi in Egypt, or that you would have violence coming from Gaza into Egypt, which is what they've seen multiple times, which is why they closed 2,000 tunnels from Gaza into Egypt. I mean, the, the situation is so much more complicated than people want to make it out to be. Um, and and, and it's, it's horrible to see the suffering of the people in Gaza. It absolutely is. Um, one of the proposals that, that is out there is that there's some sort of uh, uh, new island that's built off the coast of Gaza so that there could be access coming in to that instead of having it come in through, through Israel because Egypt won't allow it either. So there, there, are different, there are different ways that you could help in the interim, but the long term is going to require the removal of an organization that's living through the oppression of the people of, of, of Gaza, the, the, and that's Hamas, uh, who wants to have a war and it refuses to negotiate peace and refuses to allow anybody else to negotiate peace. You can't deal with that. And, of course, locally here, is there, is there wisdom in continuing to have a dialogue well, I mean, look. Both sides of this. I, mean, I, I think. I think the. I think the honest answer to that question is yes, as long as we have some some shared information. I mean, I, I think the understanding that we're both that both sides are trying to help the people of Gaza. Uh, anyone who's really there trying to help the people of Gaza, I think, can dialogue. I think I can dialogue with Maria on this because I think we both believe in that. I think we dialogue with you on that because we believe in that. I think the people who believe that. Um, opening the border and letting uh, Hamas rush across the border and murder numerous Israelis because Israel doesn't have a right to exist as a separate state and it doesn't yeah, matter I, what happens. I honestly don't know those people. That. Oh, there are plenty of people well, who believe that. <laughs> there are people who believe that, yeah. and 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 that's part of the problem. Um, and and the the other issue is we deal with a lot of anti-Semitism, and we're dealing with a lot of anti-Semitism in assuming that Israel is never telling the truth and the Hamas is always 
always telling the truth. And things like uh, Israel showing video of, of swastika flags that are burning and setting fields on fire and, and, and militant groups coming at the border, rushing at the border with guns and opening fire on troops or trying to explode the border and then having people say, oh, there were no arms and nobody else tried to do any violence. That's a problem. We need to have shared I've information. I've got to wrap up the segment. Okay, I get it. We're on the radio. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we're also continuing to live stream through the break. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. So, uh, Rabbi uh, David Kaufman joining us here. Uh, when we come back, um, a brief comment about some of the latest scientific concerns relevant to climate change, and then uh, Attorney Joseph Glazebrook joining us to talk about the legal and constitutional concerns about Iowa's anti-abortion law. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. I got a and any place I hang my hat is home. Sweetening water, cherry wine. Thank you kindly, suits me just fine. Kansas City, Caroline, that's my honeycomb. Thanks for uh, joining us for this conversation today. Uh, okay, so uh, in the studio with me, uh, do- uh, Doctor Attorney uh, Joseph Glazebrook. Insurance doctor. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, you're, uh, you're, yeah. So before we talk about the uh, Supreme Court case, and you're welcome to weigh in on this, uh, Joseph. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, Earth just marked its uh, a, very, a very impressive streak, 400 months in a row that were warmer than normal. This is from uh, NOAA, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, that's, that's, no, um, that's, a pretty, that's about as reliable, nonpartisan, and fair and balanced as you can get when it comes to science. So the point is to have 400 months in a row that are warmer than normal is unprecedented. You don't get that. that that's, there's, there's nothing – that never happens. Try to flip a coin and how many, how many times in a row will it land on heads or tails? Well, it ain't 400. <laughs> you know? Something is up. This is, not, um, this is not a coincidence. This is not cyclical. Um, I mean, if it, I know there is still some arguing that it's cyclical, but um, – you know, if you look at the cycles naturally, they, they, they go a lot more gradually. This is like, whew, off the charts. So, yeah, and again, we saw that here in Iowa. You know, and interestingly, even though, even though uh, April was one of the warmest months on record globally, in two states, Iowa and Wisconsin, it was the coldest April ever. And it, it bugs me that when you see that information in the press, here's one article, Shivery April breaks USA's 21-year record, never mentions the fact that it was 45 degrees warmer in the Arctic for you know a chunk of the winter, and that the polar vortex basically moved down here. Uh, again, it's not that hard to understand. Warm air expands, pushes it out, boom, we get the cold. So um, yeah, despite that, the Earth itself uh, warmer than warmer than ever, and getting warmer. So maybe we can think about that when we when we um, consider our own lifestyle cho- choices, but also our political choices and. The kinds of policies that we um, we want our candidates and elected officials to push. Okay, so moving on. Iowa just passed the most restrictive abortion law in the country, the fetal heartbeat bill, and 
Uh, it was a it was a very contentious debate, uh, passed by the uh, Republican House, Republican Senate, and then signed with almost gleeful enthusiasm. I was surprised at how joyful she was um, on something so controversial and so heart-wrenching for so many people. Uh, Governor Reynolds signed the bill, and uh, the, I think the ink had barely dried when Planned Parenthood, the Emma Goldman Clinic, and the American Civil Liberties Union, Iowa, uh, decided to take that to court. And Joseph is not specifically representing any of those organizations, but he's um, always got a fairly up-to-date up to and astute uh, analysis of some of these um, legal challenges. So, Joseph, your thoughts on whether these organizations are blowing smoke or whether they've got a real legal and constitutional ground to stand on? Well, of course they have a legal and constitutional ground to stand on. I mean, um, it is the most restrictive um, law in the country. Um, Every single other law that even comes close to this one has been struck, usually by federal courts. Um, so I have no doubt that this law, too, will be uh, successfully challenged. I think the really interesting dynamic here, though, well, there's a couple. One is the politics locally about how it will affect the governor's race going into November. Uh, second, and perhaps more legally important, is the 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 desire of the uh, people challenging the law to stay in state court rather than go to federal court. Um, so going to that second point first, let me just kind of break down what's going yeah, on. Yeah, with a quick question, because you said uh, similar laws around the country were struck down in federal court. Yes. Is there precedent for a similarly restrictive law being struck down in the state court somewhere? Yeah, there there sure is. I mean, I don't have the the states or the cases at the, you know, on my fingertips here, but I am very familiar that a lot of states have um, constitutions similar to the United States federal constitution, which contains similar language that basically protects the right to privacy, the right to autonomy, those sorts of things. We call that substantive due process in, legal, in legalese. Basically what it means is that you can't take somebody's life, liberty, or property without um, a certain due process given to them. And uh, in some cases, there's no process that would sufficient, uh, sufficiently protect them from the government taking the, the, that liberty away. We call that substantive due process. Substantive due process. It's a, it's a yeah. technical legal term, but basically that doctrine, it, it derives from the due process clause of the federal constitution, and um, probably every state in the country has cases under that theory, under their own constitution, including very, very much here in Iowa. Probably on a whole range of issues, too. On a whole range of yeah. issues, ranging from uh, things like whether you can um, uh, disallow mentally disabled people from doing certain things, or whether people who are, I mean, uh, people who want to uh, use birth control, to people, I mean, people have challenged things like whether the government can pub publicize a criminal conviction and you know some things have been allowed and some things haven't but basically anytime the government takes away your liberty at the very least you're entitled to a certain amount of process to protect you from that deprivation of liberty and in some rare cases when it comes to the most fundamental choices a human being makes they've said that there is no amount of protection that the government can afford you uh, to to then be allowed to take that liberty away and abortion is one of those areas that doctrine developed in the 60s and 70s leading up to Roe versus Wade in 1973, and then many states have since then um, followed suit and had their own case law, including Iowa. So, what, again, the, the reason why the plaintiffs are, 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 have decided to pursue this at the state level and at the federal level uh, is, be, is, is just basically because there are components of Iowa's constitution that speak pretty strongly 
to the to the to their challenge. Yeah, well, I think that that's true. I think that the Iowa Supreme Court, um, using the Iowa Constitution, has a robust track record in acting as a bulwark against arbitrary government. Basically, saying the government can't take take away people's rights just willy-nilly. They have to have a really good reason, and it has to be done in an extremely fair way. And so they've been very uh, protective of Iowans' rights. Well, and uh, the marriage equality ruling is an example of that. It is. That, oh, of that course, was, that was a different clause, but sure, yes. Sure, but it was still a Same kind of thing. Yeah, and it was a constitutionally-based challenge uh, on the issue of liberty and, and, yeah. and the rights of individuals. Right. Uh, and, a, and a court, by the way, that was largely appointed by Republican governors. Yeah, at the time, uh, that court, I think, might have been four to three, four to three Republican. And interestingly enough, uh, two of the three justices that were ousted, I think, were appointed by Republicans, too. So it's kind of a weird way that shook out. Tennis was the only Turnus, one appointed by a... a Turnus and yeah. I think Larson. Uh, well, no, he had retired beforehand, yeah. so I'm sorry. It was uh, ba- yeah, Baker and uh, yeah. Streit, who are both Democrat. But the so, point is, it was a, right. it was a mixed court. And it's kind of interesting because uh, that case w- really was one of these cases where they challenged under the Iowa Constitution instead of the federal Constitution. And when they did that, they were unanimously successful. Had they gone to federal court on a marriage equality challenge in 2008 or whatever year it was, Nine. Uh, well, the, the case came out in 2009. I think the litigation began the year before. Right, right. Had they gone through the federal courts at that time, they absolutely would not have one, at best, they could have gotten some sort of lower court to give them a favorable ruling, but then the appeals court would have struck it down, you know, would have gone the other way. Right. So there was a legal <coughs> strategy yeah, involved. Yeah, so there's, there's wisdom to this decision. And my impression is that uh, there's a lot of interest in seeing this decision move very quickly because July 1st is the day that the, yeah. uh, the bill takes effect. But realistically, is there any way with the, with the Supreme Court not even <coughs> in session, right? Well, I guess if it's a district court and they win a district court, That'll that'll prevent the law from that'll put a, a stay on it, right? Yeah. Well, two couple things there. One, um, yes, a district court will hopefully stay the law going into effect, and I think that I mean they filed what a week ago, um, mm-hmm. something like that. So I don't even know if they've uh, gotten an, a ruling on that. I'm sure they will within the coming days if they haven't already. And that ruling, unless unless the judge is just completely. Um, ideologically opposed to abortion, will almost certainly stay that law. Even if they don't like abortion, even if they're a conservative judge, they're very likely to stay that ruling because it's so obvious. This isn't a case of a gray area. This is a case right. of black and white. The law has been settled, and they've chosen to challenge a settled who, law. Um, who gets to choose the judge in this case? The way judges are assigned in Iowa state court is uh, typically by a, a random system, a lottery system. So uh, the clerk, or actually it's the court administration office, um, has a uh, rotating list of judges that just get picked at random. Okay. So it's the luck of the draw. It is. Wow. It that's, is. That's, a, that's actually very fair. It is. It's a good way to do it. A little, uh, a little bit like gambling, though. Well, I suppose. <laughs> but it's, I, you know, I don't know of any other way to do it. I, <clears throat> no, I suppose I either, people yeah. could just, uh, the chief could assign it or something. But, you know, it, it's a fair way to do it. And I should point out that this isn't the first time that an abortion law has made it through the Iowa court system before. I mean, recently we've had two big cases go through, and one's still pending, um, we have the uh, waiting period uh, bill that's currently being challenged in the Iowa Supreme Court. We're expecting a decision on that. Oh, that's right. And then the uh, previous one was the telemed abortion case where the Iowa Supreme Court, I think it was four to three, struck down 
a administrative regulation, I believe it was, passed by the Iowa Board of Medicine to uh, restrict the ability of local doctors to dispense medication via telemedicine. And, and that was a big deal in rural Iowa. It was. That, yeah. that, that's the primary way that rural <clears throat> Iowans have access to reproductive care. And so it's kind of ironic that the Republicans who get a lot of their political support from rural Iowa were uh, disproportionately um, restricting health mm -hmm. access to rural Iowans. So but, do, you, do, yeah. you, do you think the district court will rule on this before July 1st, before the bill takes effect? Well, I, I do think they'll issue a stay. I don't think they'll rule on the merits of the case. I think that the district court in Iowa will, will move faster than a federal court would overall. Um, you know, so I think that might be part of the thinking as well. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but I think that what you're likely to see as far as a timeline goes is I think you're likely to see a order within the next week or two at the, at the latest staying the law before it goes into effect in July. Um, and then probably several months of litigation, um, which will culminate in something called a summary judgment hearing. This is not going to necessarily be a trial. It's going to be more like a motion to to throw out the law. And there's going to be affidavits and there's going to be uh, a big hearing, maybe some amicus briefs at this level. I, I know that the family leader on the other side of the issue is, is, is putting together an amicus brief that yeah. includes average people – Signing up and saying that they support the uh, the bill. Well, that's law. and that's fine. They can do that. They'll. I mean, I don't know how much weight that carries with the court. Not a lot. I mean, it's more it, like a good organizing. Every tool, time, every time you have a law doing anything, literally anything, there's going to be people who have an opinion about it. So expressing right. that to the court is not particularly relevant. But yeah, I mean, there's going to be a, a big hearing probably. I don't know, in the fall, possibly. I, I think it might be after the election, but um, it might be before. I mean, if they really fast-track it, it could be before the election. Either way, though, as long as the litigation is pending, the law is going to be stayed, now, and it could affect the election. Now, if it does get decided by district court, mm -hmm. uh, either side is going to appeal it. Correct. And it's going to go to the Iowa Supreme Court, which right. reconvenes in mid-September. Yeah, I mean— Is it likely to be—so you know, it, could it get to the Supreme Court before the election? What— I don't see the merits of the case reaching the Supreme Court before the election. What I could see is some specific um, preliminary issue going up on appeal, such as the stay. I mean, the stay of the law might get appealed itself um, if it's, let's say, it doesn't get stayed, which I think would be insanely unlikely. Uh, but if it didn't get stayed, then the ACLU and Planned Parenthood would file a appeal of the order denying the stay. And I could see that happening in July or whatever. And the, it doesn't matter that the Supreme Court's not currently, you know, in session. They'll, they'll still issue a, an order on that. Um, politically, regard, just, just regardless of what happens in the courts, this is going to have an impact on the election. Uh, not just the I – mean, maybe less so the primary election because it seems like all the Democrats running for Congress – probably most running for the state house and certainly for governor are against the uh, law right so where it really comes into play is after the primary after june 5th leading up to the november election how do you think it's going to play out there yeah i agree with that uh, other than just one little caveat i think that uh, fred hubble is going to use his experience as a planned parenthood board member uh, to try to play up that issue a little bit more in the primary. But I'm not sure that it's going to have a, a big effect. I agree with that. In the general election, I think the, the, the effect is going to be uh, twofold. 
Um, on the one hand, I think that there's going to be a lot of um, women and moderate uh, folks in the suburbs and people who might have voted Republican in recent elections who are going to be turned off by this uh, law. They're going to say, well, I vote Republican on economic issues, but I don't like this radically conservative, religious, even evangelical agenda coming out of the statehouse. And I think they're going to be so turned off by that that some of them will stay home, maybe even some will switch parties and vote for a Democrat. I also think that the counter uh, force to that that dynamic is going to be some folks, perhaps in, in more rural areas, um, being inspired by the um, evangelical bona fides of this new governor, that they're going to come to her um, aid more so, more enthusiastically than they would have previously. Are you, are you saying it's a wash? Yeah. Basically, well, really? actually, no. I, I don't think it is because here's why. I think that the the religious folks were really hoping that this would instigate a path forward to the United States Supreme Court so they could undo Roe versus Wade. And due to what is actually not that complicated litigation strategy, the opponents of the law have completely cut that off for them. And so there's absolutely... Did, did, they didn't see that coming? I, I guess not. I, I, at least the people that talk about it don't seem to have seen that coming. I mean, that's, there's a it's historical obvious. precedence. Yeah, there, it's pretty know? obvious. that, that and I had dozens of people come up to me when the law passed asking me, what's going to happen? Are we going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court? I'm like, no, we're not going to go to the Supreme Court. Everybody thought we were going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court on this law. But it's very obvious that when you, are, when you have a, a really protective local Supreme Court and you have a really conservative federal bench, you're going to choose that local court any day of the week. So I think it was obvious. But because it's not going to go federal and because they're not going to get their Roe versus Wade Waterloo battle up there, I think it's going to turn a lot of those those people who are hoping for that off, too. So I think that the enthusiasm on that side, you know, this law is going to be stayed. It's going to be sitting there dormant for months. Um, there's probably not going to be any action right before the election. But, you know, you never know how these things work out. But assuming that there's at least a month or two of quiet before the election and assuming there's just a stay and it's just sitting there not being active and assuming it doesn't go federal, which it, it clearly won't. Then I just don't see that energy panning out for those do folks. You, do you see? Uh, I mean, regardless of which Democrat wins the primary, a candidate for governor, that is, do you see either that candidate or Governor Reynolds running on this issue, or they just kind of kind of step back from it and say, uh, "We'll talk about it something else." The Democrat, yes; the Republican, no. I think that Kim Reynolds will run away from this law to the extent that she can, and I think every single time there's any sort of debate the Democrat will hammer her for, for it because it's an extreme bill. I think this plays better for the Democrats than the Republicans, although it's maybe a 55-45 or 60-40 issue. It's not a 80-20 issue or anything like that. But it's, it's a strong enough majority who oppose this law that it's going to work well for the Democrat. All right. Well, um, and do we have polling on that? I mean, there's polling on abortion in general, and it's very much the case that the, the, the majority, the clear majority of people in the country are uh, generally don't like uh, laws that purport to ban abortion but or restrict e abortion severely. E even folks that are against abortion have trouble with this bill. Yes. Because, again, you could basically you could be denied the right to have an abortion even before you know you're pregnant. That's 100 percent correct. Which is, which is um, pretty, dr pretty draconian and, it is. And, and about as anti-liberty yes. as you can get. I mean, I mean, it's the I, state I, forcing people to be pregnant, Ed. I know we, yeah, well, I know we have two uh, candidates, uh, two libertarian candidates running for governor. It's kind of exciting to have a libertarian primary in Iowa. Sure. Uh, and I, I assume, I haven't talked to uh, either Jack or Marco, but I presume they're both also 
pretty strongly against this law. One would think and the Libertarian a, National platform is uh, does not uh, support laws that restrict uh, pregnancy decisions, but but some local libertarians and some national libertarians have run on a pro uh, pro life platform before. So one, one last thing I said I mentioned during the break too is that uh, if the legislature and the governor's office go Democrat, I would not be surprised to see a very quick and pointed um, reversal of this law in January which, again, would take it entirely out of the courts. Yeah, I agree with that. It would take it out of the court system almost certainly. They would say, look, it's not a law anymore. We don't need to decide the issue. Um, and frankly, yeah, I think that every single Democrat would vote to um, uh, rescind the law. I think that you might even get some Republicans voting to rescind the law. Um, I, I think maybe – I can't remember if there were one or two in, in which house that yeah. didn't vote for it. So, yeah, I mean, I think you'd get a little bit of a bipartisan wave to, to get rid of it because it's just stupid. It's just mm -hmm. a waste of money. Yeah. I mean, the, the state, actually, the attorney general opted not to defend it, so that's right. good, but we're still going to have to pay those third-party legal bills. <laughs> All right, Joseph, thanks for joining us. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, folks. Uh, Joseph Glazebrook in the studio with us. Uh, again, I want to thank Maddie, uh, Maddie Kane, our producer. Uh, thanks to you for tuning into the live stream. We'll have this available as a podcast later today, and it will rebroadcast on a number of stations. Check out the Fallon Forum website for more detail on that. Again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host for the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines. Welcome back, folks. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here on the Fallon Forum. So uh, Donald Trump spoke at the uh, National Rifle Association's annual conference in Dallas last week, and um, he uh, made it clear that he's a big supporter of the Second Amendment. And you know what? That's, um, that's, a, that's kind of a non-argument because a lot of us believe that folks have a right to own weapons to protect themselves or for hunting so it's, maybe, it's more of an interpretation of the Second Amendment that's, uh, in, that's the uh, focus of the conversation. But again, I, know, I understand why Trump says that and why others say that. But the, um, he made it clear that, you know, that as long as he was president, there will never be uh, a, quote, you know, attack on the Second Amendment. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he dismissed calls to ban guns because they wouldn't reduce terrorism or gun deaths. Because terrorists are now using cars and trucks to kill people. So he said, let's ban all cars, trucks, and vans. Oh, he says, all, I think he said all trucks and vans, maybe cars as well. You know, so he's making light of something that, um, that any reasonable person would, uh, you would understand that, you know, it's not, it's not the same thing. You know, I, again, <laughs> there are all sorts of ways of, um, of committing an act of terror or to commit an act of violence or, you know, or, or, you know, the, the bottom line is there's not a lot of ways of um, committing a mass, you know, a mass murder. Uh, it, it's going to take a gun. And reasonable people, I think, can see that. If you look at all the incidents that have occurred here and a few in other countries, they involve guns and they involve primarily guns that that are not the kind that you would use to protect yourself or for hunting. So let's, um, let's put that conversation behind us, Mr. President, if you please. Um, all right, so uh, while the president was defending the NRA, 
he uh, was apparently continuing to ignore climate science. Uh, we reached another milestone last week. A milestone as measured by the uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. They're located, uh, well, they, they, me they measure uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere in Hawaii at the uh, Mauna Loa Observatory. And this is, a, um, this is a very credible entity that have been around for a long time, have been measuring CO2 concentrations for, I want to say, since 1958. And, uh, you know, there's an organization called 350.org, and they're called that because 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere is a great target that we need to get back to. And understand that that's even that's fifty that's fifty parts per million higher than the atmosphere has contained for millions of years, sorry, thousands of years, maybe, maybe eight hundred thousand years, so nearly a million years. We've seen three hundred parts per million. The, the you know the um, the ambitious organization says we need to get back down to three fifty, even as we are now at 410. When the Great March for Climate Action went across the country, I think that was about the time when we hit 400. And yet we continue to see it go up higher and higher and higher. This is not sustainable. It's not good news. Yeah, so where it goes from here, it's uh, hard to know. But uh, there's only one direction uh, in recent times. And given our continued consumption of fossil fuel, it's going to keep going that direction. All right, so, uh, you know, there are more and more folks are saying that we need to grow our food differently if we're going to uh, cut the carbon emissions from agriculture. And I subscribe to that. I don't believe that that means we've all got to be vegans. I think there are plenty of ways of growing food that, uh, and meat even that don't require, um, uh, that don't involve as much carbon emissions. But let me take a second to look at the, um, the vegetable side of the dietary equation because we had a scare last week where 84 people in 19 different states got sick because of uh, E. coli bacteria discovered on romaine lettuce. Now, the bulk of romaine lettuce served in this country comes from the Yuma region of Arizona, a region I'm a little familiar with because we walked through there back in 2014 on the Great March for Climate Action. So the... Um, Again, that lettuce is sold all over the country. And uh, when it was discovered that that lettuce was infected by E. coli, it was replaced. <laughs> it was replaced by iceberg lettuce, which, uh, I'm sorry, iceberg is not, it's, it's marginally a food group, all right, or marginally even a food item. Iceberg lettuce, come on. Uh, there's nothing there of any value nutritionally. So replacing romaine with that doesn't say a lot for romaine. It says even less for iceberg. But the, um, the solution here is to not get your lettuce from Yuma or from any industrial source. Get it local. And if you can't, if you can't use lettuce in the, um, <laughs> you know, if you, if, you, if you really, really need lettuce or something like lettuce in the wintertime, I mean, I, I tend to just not eat salads in the winter. But if you really need it, Grow some sprouts, or there, there are local places, more and more local places that are trying to grow lettuce and spinach and baby greens and arugula, 
or even arugula in greenhouses. Get some of that stuff. You don't need to get your E. coli tainted lettuce from Yuma, Arizona. All right, so one more thing on the subject of food. Uh, 18 tons of ground beef were recalled. Why? It wasn't poisoned with E. coli. It was poisoned with plastic. Yes, plastic bits in your ground beef. 35,000 pounds of it uh, sold in Kroger grocery stores in North Carolina, Virginia, Indiana, Illinois, also in Food for Less stores and JC stores across the Midwest. Okay, so the solution here, yeah, you guessed it. Don't buy your beef or your meat from an industrial source. Get it from a local farmer that you believe in who raises it sustainably. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. about love I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such never cared much oh look at me now I never knew the technique of kissing okay so I don't drive a lot and uh, yeah I, I just the way my life is set up I can do most of what I need to do on a bike or with a good pair of walking shoes but I do drive and of course um nobody likes to pay excessive amounts of money for gas. And uh, the speculation right now is that gasoline may be headed back to $3 a gallon. Uh, this is interesting to me for a number of reasons because uh, w one reason is the, the, um, the big pipeline companies that were pushing the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, Mariner, uh, Sable Trail, you name it. Uh, you know, they've argued, well, especially the ones pushing for crude oil pipelines, they argued that, you know, these pipelines are going to help keep gas prices affordable because we need this domestic production. Of course, now we know the truth that a lot of that crude oil is heading overseas to the highest bidder. A lot of it seems to be heading to China. But the, um, the argument that we need this oil production in order to keep gas prices low, um, you know, it's, it's, it's proving to be false. So, again, uh, you know, in 2014, you know, drivers did see a significant you know, amount of relief at the pump. Uh, the average price for regular unleaded gas fell from about $3.70 a gallon in the, uh, that was summertime of 2014. And by January of 2015, that price was down to $2.04. And some, and even in 2016, they fell, in some places, gas was as low as uh, just below the $2 mark, but not for too long. So... Now, of course, gas prices are on the rise again. Uh, and, of course, it's happening. <laughs> it's time, time for summer when, uh, when people drive a lot more. Why, why is that? Anybody ever ask why the prices seem to go up when we, you know, we tend to use the, use the product more often? So, uh, you know, the, right now the national average is about $2.80 a gallon. But the, um, and that, that, that level is the highest since, uh, since 2015. And many observers are saying that, yeah, getting to $3 a gallon is just right around the corner, again, as the, as it's called, I love the name, the summer driving season, as the summer driving season uh, begins. So, you know, maybe we'll see, maybe we'll see people move away from SUVs and other gas-consuming, high levels of uh, consumption cars. We'll see, I hope so. Maybe we'll see more people opt to... Uh, you know, to um, take the train, take a vacation closer to home, 
But, uh, you know, maybe we'll see more people opt to get uh, flex fuel vehicles or electrical vehicles. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening in the automobile front that um, may make this conversation an historical relic not too far in the near future. Uh, there, there, there are some arguing that that it'll be so much cheaper to operate an electrical vehicle in the near future that that a gas-powered vehicle won't even won't even be something that people consider. We'll see. For now, if you're planning a summer vacation, get it in earlier rather than later if you want to save money on gas. Uh, ideally, you can find a way to do it without contributing too much to your carbon footprint. Ed Fallon here, folks, on the Fallon Forum, signing off.